Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. So there I was in an old yellow t-shirt, squinting out at these huddled shapes. Street light in the corner working for the first time in months. Norm? Some others too. My God, it must be serious. Raymond's forsaken his couch to come along. Lewis, apologize for disturbing you this time of night. Woke you up, too, from the look of it. You know Janet Prue lives two houses up on my side. I didn't, but nodded. Late 60s, early 70s, that classic tweed and khaki look, silky gray hair. Janet, Lewis, and this is Janet's husband, Gene, Lou Griffin. All shapes accounted for. You think we might come in for a minute, Lou? Won't keep you long. I stepped back out of the doorway. Your perfect host. Please, have a seat. Mr. and Mrs. Prue sat on the couch, Norm and his son in chairs close by. I guess I'm here as a kind of representative. Norm glanced at the Prues, speaking for a lot of your, our neighbors. You may not know what's been going on, Lewis. Have to be busy with your teaching and writing all those books. Can't imagine how much time that takes, so we apologize again for intruding on you. He looked over at his son. And for waking you up, Raymond said. Can I get your folks anything? Four heads went no. Good. I didn't have anything to get them. Last few weeks, there's been a team of robbers, purse snatchers working in the neighborhood. Kids, really. Riding bikes and carrying guns. They held up one of the college girls down the street last weekend. Last night, Janet and Jean were late for some kind of alumni dinner, right? They nodded. Janet came out, got to the car, and realized Jean wasn't behind her anymore. And all of a sudden, there they are. One of them's got a passenger on the back. He leans over like Indians going from side to side on their ponies in old movies, she says afterwards, and snags her purse. Strap pulls tight and snaps. She reaches, but it's gone. We're talking black here, Lewis. You understand that? Black kids on bikes with guns hitting their own neighborhood. Ours. Never mind the robberies. That's bad enough, but sooner or later... Someone they pull up beside going to talk back. Or else someone looking out his window is going to get his gun. Next thing you know, we got a street full of police cars. Okay, Norm, what do you want me to do? I don't know. But everybody on the street knows you're a detective. Used to be. Used to be, right. So anyway, they thought maybe you'd have some idea how we could get on top of this. Thought maybe you could check around, ask some questions. What kind of questions? You know that better than us. Okay, I'll keep an eye out, Norm. That's really all anyone can do, even the police. Good enough. He stood, so did the others. Thank you, Mr. Griffin, Mr. Prue said. We appreciate this, his wife confirmed. Pillar of my community for show. Norm's son lingered behind. Something I can do for you, Raymond? Nah. He stood watching my rear wall. Anything happened back there, it wouldn't get past him. <clears throat> my civics teacher says it was someone named Lou Griffin who stopped the guy that shot all those people from buildings back in the 60s. 
Says he hunted the guy down and threw him off the top of one of the buildings. I think I heard about that. Raymond looked at me. Don't guess that was you, huh? Must have been another Lou Griffin. Yeah, yeah, that's what I said. I shut the door behind him and turned up the music again. Bach, a prelude and fugue. Wanda Ladowska at her monster harpsichord, plucking the world back into order. Visitors gone, Bat shot down the stairs and sat mewing, waiting impatiently for me to provide an appropriate lap. No question which Lou Griffin he wanted, the one that was here. What I was doing was counting. Reduced by circumstance, liberals would say, from loftier aspirations, social conscience to humanities to pursuit of literature, to simple mathematics. There were three of them. I'd been hit nine times, kicked four. One tooth was loose. It was ten in the morning. Maybe I ought to stop getting my butt kicked. Not that I held it against them personally. Fifty-year-old guy wearing a tie and coat, guy no one ever saw before, shows up in the neighborhood asking questions. What else he gonna be but bad news? A repo man, skip chaser, collector of some kind. And looks like he might have a few dollars on him, weighing him down. Civil-minded young brother's just naturally gonna help the man out, provide him some answers, natural as rain. But enough's enough. It was a trick, a technique I hadn't had occasion to use in years. You reach down and find the rage, the frustration, defeat, and despair. Find that black pool just beneath the world's surface that never goes away. You find it, you bring it up, you use it, and for a while it takes you over. You become its vehicle, what voodoo practitioners call a horse. I turned onto my back, grunted with pain, gasped and held my breath. They all pulled back a moment, and when the one at my feet leaned in for a closer look, I kicked him between the legs, then spun on my back and took another legs out from under him as he was looking up to see what happened to his man. That left one standing, but only till I slammed my foot straight into the side of his knee. The others would get up in time. He wouldn't. The second guy was already trying to get up. I gave the side of his head a light kick. Afterwards, this strange serenity comes over you. The vessel's emptied. No more fright or flight. But adrenaline still got your senses racked up high. Everything's incredibly sharp, clear, intense. The world shimmers. You hear breathing from an upstairs apartment. A bird song blocks away. You see patterns of sunlight in the air around you. You hear a cat moving, crouched down low against the wall. That's how it was as I walked back up towards Canal. In others' faces, I saw the ordinary world returning. On a clock's face, I saw it was almost one. Oh, baby died this morning, now she's underground. 
from the hospital planning on a few hours sleep before I dropped out of school to patch things up and took another shot at tracking down Sean Delaney. But I only slept through 30 minutes, fumbling for the phone, seeing my coffee cup still full on the floor by the bed. Lou? I realized I hadn't said anything. I just picked up the phone and lay there with it to my ear, listening. Want me to call back? You at work? Yeah. City's funny that way. Likes me to show up on a more or less regular basis. <laughs> Very funny. Wanted to let you know nothing's come in on the prints or photo. Not that I expected anything this soon. I talked to the officer who took the call, but he couldn't tell me much of anything we don't already have. Call came in 911 at 914 from the driver of the sanitation truck. No real evidence of struggle. How could you tell? Our alley's right. Obvious that the truck hadn't been the first thing after him that night, though. No evidence that he or anyone else was living in the alley. No sign of personal property or belongings aside from what he had on him. I got a copy of the report here for you. You want it? Thanks, Don. No problem. How'd it go at the hospital? Long and shallow. The man stuck resolutely to his story. He was Lewis Griffin, a novelist who wrote about what it was like on the streets, about the city's real subterranean life. Self-taught, a primitive, working on a new one now. He'd done three chapters just that morning. You mean yesterday morning, I said. Whatever. He'd fixed himself a light lunch, then he'd gone out for his usual afternoon walk, and somebody must have jumped him, because that was all he remembered. I asked him where he lived, uptown. Been there long? Ten, twelve years. He told me about Laverne, how they'd once lived there together, but that was a long time ago. I asked him to tell me about his books. You haven't read them then? I'm afraid not. He shook his head sadly. Not many people have, I guess, but this new one could change all that. He had some of the titles right, almost everything else, including the plot of the old man, dead wrong. You wouldn't happen to have any paper with you, he asked as Bailey and I were leaving. Thought I might take advantage of this, try to get some work done in the new book while I'm here. I said I thought that was a good idea and gave him the notebook and pen I always carried. When I finished telling him about it, Walsh was silent. Damn, Lou, he finally said. That's just plain creepy. Any way you look at it. Oh, I've got a feeling I've done something wrong. Tell me when you're leaving. Oh, I can't tell how What do you 
find you I was lying on the bed dipping in and out of dreams and thinking how any minute I was going to get up and put on coffee or maybe start a new career as a test pilot when the phone rang again it was Richard Garces I repeated my update on the hospital situation he was appropriately incredulous I have that list of local missions and community service centers you asked for don't suppose it's possible for me to just zap this over to you by modem not if you wanted to get here and still no facts right nope wouldn't you know it and here i am fresh out of carrier pigeons <laughs> i'll swing by pick it up after i'd done so my first stop was the new orleans mission on a stub in a dryades just before howard breaks everything off into downtown streets not without difficulty I found someone who finally admitted that, well, yes, he did kind of look after things. You live here then? He nodded. Room downstairs in the back, too small for much else. I sweep the place, clean toilets, and lock up at night to give me the room and meals. I asked if the mission passed out clothes. Sure do when we have them. Don't never last long, though goes real quick, and then it's likely to be a spell before any more comes our way. I asked about books. We got a few. They stacked up down by my room still. Bible's about the only thing anyone around here ever reads. I showed him a picture of David and a copy of the one Don took of the patient claiming to be me and asked if he remembered seeing either of these men. He shook his head and, in exchange for a twenty, agreed to show me round. Next stop was the warehouse district. Until recently, a desolate region of abandoned, boarded-up buildings and shattered sidewalks, now quickly filling with art galleries and upscale apartments built into the old hulls. The mission had no name beyond Gold Dew, worked into the bricks above the doors for the beer long ago brewed here. A peculiarly small man sat at a desk to match in what was once the building's lobby. He wore a brown plaid suit with a bright yellow rayon shirt and blue knit tie that, from the look of the knot, never got untied. Help you? I introduced myself and was telling him why I was there when he interrupted. Look, you don't mind my saying, we got two interests. Them that needs help and those that got something for us to help with. You dress too good for the first, unless I'm mistaken, I don't see you carrying thing too. Have a nice day. He looked behind me. Next. No one there, of course. Putting my hands on the desk, I leaned over him. He looked up, thought about it, and decided he might have time to help me after all but he couldn't remember ever seeing either of those two couldn't be sure of course so many coming and going every day we touched base on clothing and books how the place operated hours and occupancy records he'd think about it get back to me should something come to mind in the meantime maybe i had a dollar or two not for himself mind you I gave him two twenties and stepped out onto the street. 
across canal and stopped at the Café du Monde for what remains the best cup of coffee in a coffee-crazed city. I had told myself that I wouldn't spend more than half the day trying to track down Lou Griffin, too. Then I'd get on with what I should be doing, looking for Sean Delaney, though really I shouldn't be doing either. I should be sitting at home, getting notes together for my classes, possibly taking another look at the pages I'd done for what might be, increasingly I thought of it as such, a new book. The next mission on my list lay well beyond the quarter on Durbany, out near Elysian Fields, a formidable hike. They didn't know it, neither did I, but three guys hanging out at a corner store, same as every day, wearing oversized jeans and backwards baseball caps, were waiting for me out there, along with a brush-up on my arithmetic. Well, I wish I was in New Orleans I can see in my dreams Arm and arm down burgundy I could hear Bat chiding me from just inside as I unlocked the door. Obviously, much was amiss. I was a great disappointment to him. One morning, maybe six years before, he had shown up on Claire Fellman's screen door. He was little more than a kitten then, mostly skin and bone, with just these huge ears sticking straight up, which was how he got the name. I'd kind of showed up on Claire's doorstep, too. And when I wouldn't go away, she let me stay. We'd had a little over a year together, 14 months almost to the day. With Claire, I'd been able, for the first time, to say things that before I'd always waited too long and too late to say. Then one night I came in and found her lying on the couch. I feel... Really bad, Lou, you know? I've been with her so long that I no longer noticed the pauses, the gropings, the way she drew lines around a word and waited for it to settle in place. Come on, we're going to Toro, I told her. In ER, I raised enough hell to get her seen immediately. Neither the residents nor the attendings I insisted upon their calling in could find anything wrong. They suggested, nevertheless, that Claire remain overnight for observation. I'd gone home to pick up a few things for her, pajamas and robe, toothbrush, underwear, makeup, her purse. Back in 30 minutes, I told her. I knew something was wrong the minute I stepped inside the ER doors. People were rushing into Claire's room from all over. Another cerebral aneurysm I was told minutes later, like the one that hit her when she was 22, the one she wasn't supposed to survive, that scrambled her speech and caused her to have to learn all over again how to stand, walk, reach for things, grasp them. Massive and sudden, a doctor said. Nothing they could do. They tried, of course, but she was sorry. 
So I moved out of class, back again into the old house where I'd lived with Laverne, taking Bat along. Tell me I could live without you. Tell me let the good times roll. Tell me I could live as half a man. Loving you is what made me whole. There was a time when I could sing to you. Live for the light that I could bring to you. I sat down to sing a lonely song. God knows I never thought that it could last so long. Hours earlier, as I stood over a body I thought might be Sean Delaney's, I'd been thinking about Claire. That afternoon, I had decided that life, providence, chance, or whatever just might be sending me a message and, following the scuffle in Durbany, return home to shower off blood, grime, and stray bits of skin and street tar, eat cold, denty more beef stew out of a can, put on new clothes, and head back out in pursuit of Sean Delaney. On foot to the donut shop where Sean Delaney had worked. By then it was almost full, and by then the shop was closed. Not just closed, they'd pulled a rug out from under it. Tasty D-Nut was shut down like a clam, gone, abandoned, deserted, defunct. Next door was a florist shop. A bell tolled as I ducked through the entryway and came up against a trestle table behind which stood a woman, at least six feet tall, red hair everywhere, thin, wearing a black sheath, bare arms slim and lightly down, wrists narrow as a ruler, fingers long when she reached across the table to shake my hand, late thirties, Her earrings were tiny sharks with the lower halves of men's bodies hanging from their mouths. One problem working here is, good-looking man comes in, I know there's no way he's bringing me flowers. What can I do for you? She smiled, instinctively turning her head a few degrees to the side and lifting her chin. (laughs) Incredible profile. I asked her about the donut shop. Didn't think you looked like a flower man, she said. She told me they'd been teetering at the edge. Yes, she actually said teetering for months over there. Some days they just put out on the shelves whatever was left over from the day before. Even the coffee got undrinkable. Only way they managed to stay afloat at all, long as they did, was by hiring new people when they couldn't pay old ones and let them go. I said she seemed to know a lot about the situation over there, an amazing amount, really, and she shrugged. I watch people, notice what happens around me, always have. Employees take, took their smoke breaks out there. I'd be doing the books, shuffling through piles of sales slips and invoices, and I hear them talking. Did they know what was going on? They knew something was. The shop had recently been sold. Previous owners lost inches a long time back, and the shop just went on running itself. New owner bought it as an investment. He couldn't care less about donuts. Any idea what finally shut the doors? Well, I don't know, of course, but I think it may have been what happened last night. It must have been about close to ten, maybe a little past. I was getting ready to leave. I hear voices in the alley. Someone saying, be still, girl. Don't you move or talk no more. 
So I look out. This huge black car, Lincoln, something like that's pulled up out front. Four guys in it, all of them in black too, and black. Driver stays in the car. These three that get out have automatic weapons. One stands by the car watching up and down the street. Other two would go inside. They in there four or five minutes, come back out and get in the car. When the car pulls onto Jackson, people start running out the donut shop. Lights are still on inside, but no one's there. This morning, when I come in, I see the sign. Robbery, you think? Who'd bother? Best day it ever had. That shop never netted $200. This town, it could happen. A few weeks back, an 11-year-old knocked off a motel over in Claiborne, walked in with a 38, pistol whipped the desk clerk, though he had to get up on a chair to do it, and walked out with $18. Still, she had a point. They were looking for someone. That's the only thing that makes sense, yes. Way they went about it, the weapons, car, who was in the alley. I don't know names, just voices. But you looked out through the window. Yes, you saw them. Not the woman, she was at the back in shadows. I remember the man sounded black, but wasn't. That surprised me when I saw him. Average height, fairly thin, hair shaved to above his ears, then really long, kind of a top knot, like Woody Woodpecker. I asked her if by any chance she knew who owned the shop. Oddly enough, I do. A Mr. Kendall Gibbs. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.